do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. And then we get started. So a very welcome. It could be early morning. It could be okay morning. It could be late in the afternoon, depending where you are. After the success of our previous um, Ask Me Anything webinar, which was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, about three weeks ago, we decided to do another one in a different time zone to give uh, some people also the chance to call in and not just watch the recording. Um, I'm going to share my screen for a few seconds, as I mentioned, just to set the stage and give a short introduction. Um, I think most of you know who I am, but if you don't, and if you just found this invite somewhere, then um, I'm more than happy to briefly introduce myself. So let me go to move this around. So basically, well, welcome to this Ask Me Anything webinar. Obviously, you can ask me anything related to food and agriculture and investing. I don't pretend that I have any of the answers, but I've interviewed a lot of people in the past. So maybe I can point you somewhere um, where somebody has thought about your issues before. And feel free to jump into um, the questions of others as well. We've seen that last time it was very helpful. People were putting things in the chat, books, etc., other resources. Um, just to give a bit of background, I'm the host of a podcast. We've done over 80, probably 85 interviews, depending a bit how you count, um, with investors, with farmers, with scientists, with fund managers, and a lot more. Um, always to see how to put money to work to regenerate soil at scale. Not saying that we should scale um, every single farm, but we should definitely, let's say, repeat the process and, and regenerate a lot of soil. Regenerate people, we focus a lot on the nutrient density of food. Regenerate local communities, um, which we know in many places are in a very bad shape. And I think primarily because the agriculture system isn't working, plus many other reasons. Um, and obviously regenerate ecosystems, um, which was the original reason why I get into this space, because I got very interested in the carbon side of things. Um, and then obviously discovered all the other extra or the other impacts that uh, regenerative agriculture can have when done well and when done at scale while generating a fair return which is obviously leading to a lot of debate what is a fair return is that even possible depending on how degraded your land is etc 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 but i think it's the quest we're looking for um, can you invest in a way that makes sense that makes sense for the investor the soil the farmer the landowner local community etc while generating a return um, so that's sort of the north star we're, we're pushing for you can find anything, obviously, in your favorite podcast app. doesn't mean you have to listen to it on SoundCloud, which is our current hosting provider, but you can find it anywhere, Spotify, um, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Um, if you use one app and you cannot find it, please let me know because it might, means we have to, um, have to make sure it gets listed there. So what is regenerative agriculture? I think we got quite a few questions last time on that. Um, so I pulled a general definition. We can have a, a, probably one hour ask me anything about this. Uh, but it's a farming it's a system of farming principles, very important. So there's no one recipe. Um, focused on increasing biodiversity, enriching soils, improving watersheds, and enhancing ecosystem services. And I think the this gives a gives a nice overview just to set a bit the stage. Then obviously, usually the quest the next question is 
And what's the difference with, between organic? What's the difference between biodynamic? What's the difference between sustainable? And it really depends. It depends. Um, organic is not always regenerative. Um, even biodynamic is not always regenerative. And sustainable agriculture for sure is not regenerative. And I think the next very brief, um, very simple, simplified uh, overview gives that the, quite clearly. Extractive is the current system we're in. We've been discussing um, sustainable agriculture for a long, long time. Um, and we see a shift to regenerative. Why? Because we the, sustaining the current agriculture and food system is probably something we don't want to do. Like, why would you want to sustain a system that has depleted um, aquifers, that has depleted soils, that has created enormous uh, dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and actually in many other places? Um, so we, we really started searching for, and actually a number of farmers uh, a number of years ago, for a system that can restore, can regenerate. So if you say, what's the difference between organic? Organic can be done regeneratively, but you would have to ask the questions we saw before. Like, is it increasing biodiversity? Is it increasing soils, improving soils? Is it improving watersheds? And if it's not, it might be sustainable or it might be actually extractive. I've seen organic systems uh, which are definitely not sustainable and not regenerative. So it's, um, it's not a replacement of organic. It's just a different set of questions uh, we should ask. And I think the, mo- the, the easiest question always to ask is, does it build soil or not? Is it measurable? Are people actually measuring the improvement of soils? And then we get into a discussion how to measure that and, and so on. If you want to learn more, if you're completely new to this, um, definitely jump into a number of these books. Uh, there are great talks about them as well. You don't have to buy the book if you're not a, a reader per se. You can get uh, great talks about David, with David Montgomery on YouTube. Kiss the Ground, the book is great. Kiss the Ground community is very interesting as well. If you want to really see the farmer's uh, version, uh, definitely read Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. And this, any of these three books will give you a very good uh, introduction into, into the subject. And with that, I will stop my screen sharing and we'll get to the Q&A. There we are. And I actually want to start with the question of Connie, who cannot be here because she is in St. Louis. But I think it, um, it's quite a technical question, not on the food side, but on the investment side. So I will type it into the chat. Um, and for anybody who has questions, please type them into the chat. So Connie is mentioning that she's been digging into alternative equity structures, which is something we've discussed a few times on the, um, on the podcast. And I think it's interesting for a number of different reasons, because we probably need different investment structures to invest in regenerative agriculture and food, both in the food side of things, so the food companies, but also in the agriculture side of things. And the, tra- the traditional um, either debt or equity probably is too rigid for many of this. So she was asking very specific on safes and convertible debt. Um, what, is, what is possible there? What are the, the, the different, what are people doing? And I already answered to her, so I will um, actually put it in the chat as well. But there are a few, it's not an easy question, but there are a few places where you can look for alternative investment structures and they're not necessarily food and ag focused um, so far. So I would just put them in the chat to, for you to see. But there, there, is, there is stuff happening, basically. So the first one is um, IndieVC, which is not is software-focused, but basically um, puts money to work in, in growing software companies uh, that, are, um, that are making money. So they're, they're only putting money to work 
in companies that actually have uh, sufficient cash flow. And they're very successful in that. And they're really creating this, this revolution in the software world where they're not going for the IPO exit. They built the exit into the investment structure, et cetera. The second one is Purpose Capital. We've interviewed them, uh, the founder Armin, I think two years ago or a year and a half ago on alternative buyout capital. Uh, they've made a long way, they've come a long way since then. And one of the deals they did actually was with Organic Grown, which is a large organic distributor in the US. And they provided together with RSF, social finance, the alternative buyout structure for that. So the, the company Organic Grown moved to a steward ownership model and needed to buy out the current investors. And Purpose and a number of other players provided that capital, and, but obviously didn't get the control of the company because the company moved to steward ownership. So there's a very interesting tension between steward ownership and still wanting to raise money, and in this case, being able. Share Tribe is not focused on um, ag tech um, whatsoever, but is focused on, on software as well. But they did a crowdfunding um, for equity, but with a buyback in built into it. So they actually, the crowd could invest. Purpose was behind this as well. They moved to a steward ownership model and they managed to raise quite a bit of money. Um, but again, without giving away control of the, the company um, and the investors, the crowd investors could be any of us. Um, are being bought out by free cash flow over over time. I will, if you're interested in this, definitely check out that link because they explain all the terms, they explain the full thing, why they're moving to steward ownership and also why they're raising money in this way. Um, and they were successful. They, they closed their round relatively quickly. Um, another example is the, more in the ag space is the perennial fund. We've interviewed Brendan and they will definitely come back on the show. There's a lot of interest in their skin in the game, um, profit sharing or free cash flow sharing model while they're helping farmers to go to regenerative organic. Um, it's a pilot still. They will close probably the fund in, I think, September. And then we'll see, they will start working with about eight farmers. Um, and we've done a Q&A with uh, Brendan and Phil actually uh, in the past uh, on, on this channel. So there, there are these small experiments, but predominantly people fall back to either depth or very rigid depth or, uh, or equity. And there's one more, which is um, actually, let me see if I have it as well. I will put that later in chat. So there's the Impact Terms platform, which is part of Tonic, where I spent part of my, my day job, where we look a lot at alternative exits as well. And how do you build in the terms, the impact terms into the term sheets? So not just nice words when you're signing any kind of contract, but actually build them into your term sheet. So there's a lot of experimentation happening. I would love to see a lot more in food and ag because we, we don't have enough yet. We see some in software, we see some in other places, but we need more, we need more creativity in, in terms of uh, uh, deal structures also here. And that could be a, a good segue to your question, uh, Tamas, if, uh, if you want to jump in or you want me to copy, copy paste it into, into the chat. You're on mute at the moment. Okay, so as a food entrepreneur with a proven product market fit in regenerative almonds in Spain, where do you look for current active angel investors who are seeking fundable seed stage businesses to impact the regenerative food or agri-food space in Europe? I think the first question would be, why are you, why are you raising capital? What, what, is it, uh, what is it for? You're still on mute. I, I muted you. Hi, Con, and thanks, thanks for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm based in, in Spain, where we are working on the largest uh, regenerative 
almond uh, agricultural project. We are aiming to restore a million hectares of land in southern Spain. And there are a number of players involved here, such as the Common Land Foundation, Havelal, and, and others. And what I'm working on is a, is a private company that aims to capitalize on the market opportunity is identified in the fast-growing food spread market, almond spread, and, and, and this is the category. And in order to, to move into this space, we need uh, to raise some funding, uh, mainly for the, for the production, the equipment, uh, marketing, branding, and so on. And, and so the ideal uh, uh, investors we are looking for are, are those who understand the, the benefit of regenerative, and they are looking for a long-term uh, impact investment uh, space, which is actually uh, already uh, something we are setting up with, with other partners. But but what I'm working on is a, is a separate project, so that's why I'm I'm super grateful for for you and uh, and and keep on doing your great work. Thank you so much for this. So any advice would be greatly appreciated. So thank you. And, and in terms of size, um, what, what, because this sounds like, do you need to set up a, a spread factory, which could be quite expensive? What is, what is the, the, uh, the size you're thinking of? Is it 10 million, 400,000? What, what's more or less the, the range we should think about? Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. So uh, I'm working with, with some partners. So we, we have uh, outsourced uh, manufacturing, so that's not a problem. Um, it's mainly for uh, for a long-term uh, brand building and really to to address the the consumer needs. Um, so what I'm looking for is is an offer for in the range of 150 to 100,000 uh, euros uh, in exchange for equity in the company. So this could be a great opportunity for for uh, for investors looking for a long-term. Um, uh, value gener generation in, in, in a space that is already uh, well established in southern Spain, uh, supported by many many uh, many partners. And if you know, I think you have done many interviews with Commonland, so they're working on a 20-year base, and so this also can give a, a confidence because I, I personally know uh, everyone involved there. So uh, this could be another other value add to this. Yeah, definitely. I will link the, the interview with Michiel, which was completely at the beginning of the podcast. I think Michiel of Commonland, um, which was probably, I don't know, number three or four we did um, on, uh, on the project in Spain. They are the landscape they're, they're managing. In terms of the, the, the early stage investing, the seed stage is often the most difficult because it's by far the most risky, even though you're in an established landscape that is moving forward. And for many i would advise to find it as local as possible you need someone um, especially angel investors need to have a connection or at least in my experience with with the company and in this case probably also with the landscape or with 
Um, they definitely need to be um, convinced, obviously, and they need to understand regenerative agriculture. They need to understand the length. In this case, you're asking them to invest in a food company, um, and they either need they, they probably need some kind of connection um, with the land because why would a German investor or a Dutch investor, unless they really really know the landscape well and have been there, etc., why would they invest so far away as they can have probably easier or closer um, investment opportunities? And it's 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 annoying, but it's the the like with every kilometer you're away from the other, it just gets more difficult in terms of cultural differences, in terms of language, in terms of distance, literally. And there are not very few that are super comfortable with, uh, okay, I'm, I'm based in Greece and I'm going to invest in, uh, in Spain, just like that. Larger deals is different because you have the space of doing due diligence or visiting. I mean, as soon as you get to a different size, um, you also need different, um, different experiences on board. And then there are usually a number of players. I mean, we have a number of, of interviews we did with players that are interested in, in the food space of this. I mean, Triodos is one with their organic growth fund. Quadia is another one. Um, but they all look at sizes, million plus, et cetera, simply because of the, the, the diligence costs. So if you look at smaller examples like that, usually you end up with, I mean, you mentioned what, what kind of angel investors would be, would be interested in that. And, the chances of finding someone outside Spain are, are not so large. Obviously, anybody listening interested, please get in touch with, with Tomas. This is not, not investment advice, but it's um, usually the closer, the better, because they, they will have a connection with the space. They will have a connection with the landscape, with the land. And, and especially for slightly smaller deals like that, you, you, will, ha- you will need that, that connection because it's going to be a, a difficult due diligence process because there's not too much to do due diligence on. And so there needs to be that easy social connection. Now it's difficult, obviously, because we're in a, in a COVID world where, where even if you're nearby, you cannot build that relationship. But I would really see like what is already happening in that landscape and, and what can you raise even could be partly crowd could be partly or smaller tickets. I'm not saying it should be a hundred euros each, but smaller tickets of 5k, 10k, obviously depending on, the country where you're at, can you easily find a platform to handle that? That really depends. I, I don't know Spain that well. Um, but trying to see if you can embed it as much as possible local because it's going to be difficult, I think, to find an investor from Paris or an investor from Rotterdam to say, okay, of course, almonds. I understand. <laughs> let's, let's jump in. Um, maybe it's not the, the, the answer you wanted to hear, but that's, that's what I, I see. But for others to obviously, if you have other experiences, please jump in. Thank you so much. And with that, definitely, I mean, we're a small group this morning or this afternoon. So we, last time we had so many people that it was, the, the chat was filling up constantly. Please um, unmute yourself. If you want to be on video or not, let me know. Um, but um, ask your questions uh, if, you, if you have them. Don't be shy. Magdalena. Hello, oh, there's Matus. Um, let's do Matus first, and then we jump to Magdalena. Sorry, Magdalena. <laughs> Please go. Uh, well, thank you, uh, and thank you, Kun, for uh, the work you are doing. I don't have any particular burning, you know, specific question when it comes to investing in regenerative art, but I am curious. You have questions to know. about hay, I think, or not? <laughs> I do, and and carbon credits. <laughs> 
Um, no, but I'm, I'm curious to know what's your greatest challenge in the work you are doing, right? What, what, what are you struggling day to day personally mm, in building this community and uh, informing and encouraging investment flows into regenerative art? That's a very good question. Okay, let me, um, let me think about that while we're answering the question of Magdalene and then we'll come back to that because I have a few, but probably you will be, um, yeah, I, 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 will, I will come back to that. So I like that. Thank you. In the chat, uh, Magdalena wrote, what's in your opinion, the argument that most convinces farmers to move to regenerative as they operate on very thin far margins and increase profitability or the expert of, or the aspect of reduced climate risk. So there are a number of, I mean, if you, um, for instance, read what's the book called the call of the reed wobbler of Charles Massey, he, is a farmer based in Australia. He documents a number of, I think, seven or eight case studies of, of farmers moving. And actually, it's the same with Gabe Brown. You see many, maybe of the earlier ones, the, the earlier ones that made the transition or are in the transition because nobody's done. 10, 15 years ago, they moved out of necessity because they simply hit a wall. Their <clears throat> margins run out and they couldn't, they couldn't buy the inputs anymore. They couldn't buy all the inputs anymore. So they were forced to figure out, okay, cover crops are cheaper, let's experiment with that. They were, they were, their hands were forced. Now we are in a different world, I think 10, 15 years later, and there's a lot more information. First of all, online you can discover and learn and you can dive deep into many of these. Obviously, it's not the same following uh, a Gabe Brown or a Richard Perkins or somebody online as doing a course or actually having an, an, an experienced agronomist on your farm. But I think now it's becoming more the pool factor and previously, it was much more the push factor of people literally farmers not being able to change, not being able not to change because they had to either or you were going bankrupt. Um, obviously, very place dependent. Uh, this so now I see more farmers that are seeing their yields be starting to top or starting actually to go down in many of the the most let's say advanced commercial agriculture lands, and they see their input costs going steadily up. So they see those two lines are somewhere hopefully. Um, um, connecting, they're, they're not touching yet, but in some cases they are. And, and they start to think, okay, how can, I, if, how can I either improve the yield or push the input cost or the inputs down? And, and that's a long journey. You can, cannot do that from one day to the other. But it, it's, it's often out of necessity. Um, but I think many more farmers now start to see the business opportunity. They start to see the specialty crop markets, uh, depending a bit on their size. They start to see, I mean, we're in a huge food crisis at the moment where anybody that sells directly to consumers is doing amazingly and everybody that sells directly to restaurants and food services is, is having to change overnight. So there are a lot of opportunities as well. You see big companies, General Mills, they're known actually doing long-term contracts with certain farmers. So I think now the opportunity becomes more interesting. And then obviously the carbon part, the water part and the biodiversity part aren't there yet, the markets, but we see the first movements. So I think we're switching now sort of, of, I have to change because of out of necessity to I see a better, better opportunity. And um, I think there are a number of ways we can learn from that. I think one of, obviously for anybody, it, it really depends on the crop type. It depends on where you are, but speak to your farmers locally, like find farmers, spend time with them because that's where you learn by far the most. Um, I think the wine industry is, is funny enough somewhere we can learn. I mean, if there's any industry where they're really good at selling soil, in this case terroir, it's definitely the wine industry and the higher end ones 
build that story around place and you know that this type of uh, this type of grape grown in a different region everybody knows that it doesn't taste the same but somehow we think that the tomato should be um, so there's there's a lot to learn there and you see a lot of them have been working the soil very differently and pure for quality maybe not for the carbon part maybe not for for other reasons uh, but i think there's a lot to learn there so we definitely um, talk to a big group of grain farmers if you want to know more about that talk to a, a group of um, of vegetable farmers or produce and, and try to to figure out but i think i hope at least but i see the first signs we're starting to switch to a more opportunity pool than it was a push before uh, but i mean i heard stories where in this i think third year of drought in in the netherlands and in germany so a lot of farmers will be pushed unfortunately as well because it's yeah we're in, in literally in crazy times does that answer your question that that answers something quite well. Thank you. And then to Matej, the biggest, um, I mean, time is an easy answer. I would say um, uh, the biggest struggle, but I think bigger because I showed it yesterday to to someone. Like I have a list of more than two hundred interviews I would like to do, and it doesn't include the check in ones that I would love to check in back with Michiel on Common Land and see how X Y Z is doing. So I think a struggle, but it's a, it's a luxury problem because I know many podcasters that have a, um, an issue of finding new stories. I don't have that issue at all, thanks to many of you that have been suggesting great people to interview. Um, so it's more figuring out what to focus on and which ones to interview than it is to, um, to finding interviews, et cetera. And that's a good struggle to have, but it's, it's also, I mean, we're probably going to release an episode a week over the next months because there are just too many that I need to do and I would like to do um, to stick to the every two week schedule. So I hope we'll, we'll manage to scale it up. And it simply means more time, obviously some, uh, some investments in terms of editing, um, but it's, that's okay. To, I mean, we have the pipeline. So one struggle is I think selecting which ones. Um, another one, a lot of people are asking for investment advice or asking, where do I find investors like Tomas is doing? And I don't really have a perfect answer. Like it's, it would be great if I have a list and say, okay, of course, these people are interested in that. These people are interested in that. The truth is that there's simply, there is interest. There's definitely interest. It's not all public. It's not all easy to access. They're not, there's not a nice public directory that's up to date. I mean, there's some small lists, et cetera, but it's very difficult to answer that question. And I would love to, it's like, I mean, make, introductions and I mentioned people but the flow of capital would be nice if that speeds up um, but it's not easy I mean people are raising capital for something in Australia which is very different from an ag tech investment in Germany and it's all falls on the regenerative agriculture and food hat so or umbrella so it's it's not so easy to to do that but I think yeah that that's sort of it would be easier if that flows faster but I think it shows what where we are in the sector um, a big struggle for me personally is is the the number of times I get approached from someone in selling an input base, like a biological that could replace some other input, chemical input. And I had a discussion on that with yesterday, actually, and a lot of people, yeah, it would be great to do this interview about this one ingredient that can help millions of farmers to replace X, Y, Z. And I simply had no idea if that's true. It usually sounds like magic, so probably it's not. Like I, I don't have the background or the context to, to understand the biological side of things. So to understand if this input company is actually doing something interesting or if it's just a lot of blah, 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 and they're trying to build 
uh, a, a big input company. So I really, I'm always trying to be friendly when I answer to that. Like, I don't know. And, and if I do one, I have to do more. And if I do one interview in this space, in the biological space, like the input space, I probably need a framework to decide which one because if I get 10, I cannot do all of them. So that's, that's a personal struggle. Like the input space, I really don't understand enough about to, to, to make a judgment call of let alone to invest. I mean, I'm obviously not investing in this space. I'm a, a retail investor, uh, but let alone to, to interview someone in that space. It all sounds amazing. It all sounds like magic. Like they can replace all the chemicals you want and, and the plants grow twice as fast, etc. Um, and, and I just don't have the, um, the context to, to decide on that. Apart from that, I think in the space we see um, enormous growth. I think there are enormous opportunities now. There's still a lot of discussion. Um, I mean, with the podcast, I try to both focus on the, the soil people, like people that are working the land, people that are setting up businesses, people that are um, making regenerative agriculture grow. And I'm trying to focus on the investor side of things. So the finance people, the London City people, the, the Milan people, the, the Wall Street people, et cetera, and to get them enthusiastic about soil. I think the challenges on both sides are pretty much uh, similar. Like it's very difficult for um, Wall Street people to imagine what is possible with agriculture unless they've seen it. So they need to go quite deep and they, they need to read the books, but visit the farm, spend a lot of time on the land to see what's possible. And when that happens, they go. But until that moment, they, they're stuck in, yeah, but organic yields less. And, and they're stuck in these pieces that, that are very difficult to, to answer. So to get finance people to understand the potential here, but also the limitations and the flexibility we need. And that's definitely a challenge. And the other challenge on the other side is the, the, to get soil people to understand finance a bit more or to at least trust or to at least be interested in it is also a challenge. So on both sides, I've tried to be that bridge and, and that it's definitely a challenge to, to see what's possible with money when handled well and to see what's possible with agriculture. So both worlds are, uh, need to meet a lot more. So my, my um, usual answer is always go and visit some farmers, especially the more advanced ones, spend a lot of time there and you, you will learn a lot. Anyway, I've been talking a lot. Does that answer your question, uh, Matthias? It does. Thank you. Thank you for providing multiple, uh, <laughs> you know, perspectives on 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 that one question. And uh, as Thomas have mentioned uh, previously, thank you for the work you are doing in being the bridge. And you've also mentioned uh, in this call, three-year uh, drought. I can only agree with that. That's exactly what we are experiencing in Poland. Very tough year. Another one. Good for the hay, of course, and its price, but uh, you know, for everyone <laughs> buying that hay, things are not uh, not looking nice. But uh, what's your biggest uh, challenge at the moment? Our biggest challenge is uh, um, so just just into because I, I know who you are, but just to um, very brief introduction: who sure. who are you? And I mean, you are in Poland, you mentioned, but for anybody who doesn't know. So I am a farmer, uh, being involved in the family operation of uh, 700 hectares uh, uh, of organic uh, grassland. And I am also working as, uh, as an investor with a VC fund based in Poland dedicated to Actec. And I am involved in a, in a set of agricultural projects all around the world, mainly in emerging markets, uh, which deal with you know, bridging uh, or bringing capital to those projects in the forms of uh, debt or equity or both. Um, and then on the farm level, uh, you know, the biggest challenge, and it always was like that, is predictability of, uh, 
of uh, government policy, both, you know, the Polish national government, which is a translation of common agricultural policy of the EU, uh, and kind of figuring out your way within that. Uh, and yeah. as, as much as we are, let's say, happy with uh, where the EU policy is going and how, uh, how it is being shaped, uh, there are always fine details in translation of that policy into the national law. Um, which sometimes surprises us, let me put it that way. And which is an understatement, I think, yeah. <laughs> Sorry? Which is an understatement, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's not get into that because, uh, anyway. Um, um, and then the biggest opportunity that we see, or maybe I see within our family business, is uh, placing the carbon that we are storing on the market. And of course, you know, short term, the idea is, okay, let's make more money on that. But in the, let's say, more advanced scenario, more ambitious one, I would like to use that as a, as a tool for, um, let's say, reshaping uh, both the Polish agriculture scene and more broadly European to more regenerative agriculture. Because once you start measuring, okay, how are we doing with carbon flows and how we can improve, uh, then things will move in the in the right direction. And you've interviewed Chuck from uh, Soil Capital, who's doing wonderful work in that in that particular um, you know uh, domain. Um, yeah, so that's the logic. Yeah, they just released a nice research. Let me see if I can get it up in two seconds. Well, I must go on here. Yeah, yeah, I've shared that on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Let me put it in the chat for anybody that wants to read a bit more on profitability, farming, regenerative agriculture. It's a question we always get, obviously, like, is it more profitable or does it actually work? And they've been showing with a group of farmers in Belgium that the, the farmers they follow, the most profitable ones are actually also the most regenerative ones, which is, doesn't mean that you're more profitable because you're regenerative, obviously, there's not, um, but it, it does signal something interesting that it's, at least it's possible. Um, just to get to a question of Chen, sorry, I missed that one before because there were two questions coming in at the same time. Are there critical technologies that would enable regenerative agriculture to be more widely adapted? And if so, um, what are those that are promising? Very good question. I think we do miss a number of crucial technology parts. And one is definitely, I mean, Matos mentioned it, um, an easy, reliable way to measure soil carbon on a farm level. So not just on one piece of like one square meter. And we have a lot of different ways. They all give different answers. And we're going to figure out how to model that and how to make that into one, um, one number. But it seems that the level of carbon in your soils is a good proxy for a lot of other things. Um, a good proxy for the biodiversity, both above and uh, in your soil and, and a lot of other uh, interesting things. We definitely have to measure other things. But if we could do that structurally, and um, consistently, that would be great. So there, there, there is an investment case there, an ag tech case, let's say, on the, the soil organic matter. Um, it's very tricky because it flows during the year, so it goes up and down. It's literally the soil breathes, I think we can say, as, a, um, as an analog to the human body. So to get that stable and to get a good number that you can actually pay out on like look you stored x tons of carbon you removed it from the atmosphere it's still there we can measure it and now we can pay 15 dollars 20 dollars etc on that so that would be really really nice um mm -hmm. go ahead yeah go ahead 
That's very insightful. Yeah, and the second piece, I, I would personally love to see, I, I don't have the prototype here, um, but next versions of the, the bio-nutrient meter and other devices that measure uh, nutrient density. So to, to really make the case healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut systems, and healthy people, and then obviously healthy ecosystems. Um, we see the experiments there from Teak Origin, which is actually the best listened episode um, on nutrient non-density, because most of the episode was about what's not in food. Um, we see other pieces with Jill Clapperton. We see Dan Barber making moves. We see, but it's still all very, very early stage. And to be able to measure also as a farmer during the year, if you're having annual crop, like what's happening in the crop and what's happening in the leaves, what's happening in the fruit, what's happening in whatever you're growing, um, would be very interesting in connecting that back to the soil management. And obviously as consumer, I would be super interested to know what's actually in the food and then get that connection. Like does it, um, would this food be nutritious for me or not? Which very much depends where you live, which very much depends on your, your own microbiome. So we're gonna see a lot of that soil microbiome, what's in your food and your gut microbiome. Um, and that's, there's going to be a lot of new superfoods, but I think that that's sort of a, a useless term because the superfood really depends on where you are and what kind of soil management is, is there. So there are also technology measurement, good protocols, good software to translate it, that into something that we as consumers or the farmer can use to, to, change their, uh, to change their behavior. That would be another piece that I would love. And then the third technology piece, but it's, I haven't seen too much on that is on the landscape size. Like how do we get this, even on big farms, how do we get this from a farm to farm level? Like we're gonna change this farm more regeneratively, et cetera, et cetera. How do we get that to a landscape level? And I think Commonland is one of the few organizations working on that, not really with the technology angle, mostly with the social angle, like what's happening in this landscape, in this river shed, watershed, what's happening in this bioregional system. And I think we're gonna hopefully see technology helping us to make decisions of what to plant where and why, like which element trees should be where. And do we want that to help clean up a river? Do we want that to grow almonds? Like to make these fundamental decisions on a landscape level, not just on a farm level. And there I have not seen, I mean, we're gonna see for sure climate model, satellite using, but can we use technology to, to answer that very fundamental question, like what to plant where and why, especially if we're dealing with trees, they're going to be there for a while. Like they're not animals. You cannot move them uh, next week if, if that happens to be uh, useful. No, you plant them for 20 years or plus. And, and that means you need to be very sure where to plant them as we are in a climate that's changing, as we are in a landscape that's changing. Um, and I think technology mm -hmm. won't replace us in a sense. Like I think they're very good regenerative designers. They're indigenous peoples that have an amazing amount of knowledge to to how a landscape should look or could look, but I think we can augment that with a lot of the climate models and with a lot of technology over the next, over the next years to help make better decisions. Mm, that's very helpful, thank you. Thank you so much for the question. And then, do you have any startup companies in Region X space, Magdalena is asking, that you're particularly excited about right now? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I'm, I'm biased uh, towards one in, in the Netherlands as I'm an advisor, which is Soil Heroes. I'll put it in the chat. I will interview them over the next few months, a few, like at least I think once or twice. I'm excited about that because it might trigger this market of carbon, biodiversity and water. Um, I just interviewed uh, another player in that market, Nori in the US, which I'm, I'm actually a customer because I bought last year my 
my soil removal credits or my carbon removal credits through them and they reached out. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely enthusiastic with them as a, as a customer. As an investor, I don't know. I haven't done any uh, work with them or as a potential investor. Um, other companies, it's a good question in terms of ag tech. I think any company, honestly, that, that's starting or trying to tackle this food piece, like companies, new food startups that are um, really going after the nutrient density and trying to explain that to consumers, which is not easy whatsoever. But I would love to see more experimentation there. Like, how do you, how do we as a sector explain this very complex but very interesting soil story to a consumer in a supermarket or consumer in a shop? Like, how much time do you have? And I think Tomas has experience with that actually in terms of almonds. But how do you, like, how do you explain this goes beyond organic? And how do you explain your, with every package of almonds you actually, or with every spread you buy, you actually build soil. Like that's going to be a very important piece of this puzzle to make sure that the general consumer is interested in good food, better food, etc., but doesn't have the time to go very deep, pun intended, into into the soil. How do we explain that to them, and how do we make sure that that we get buy-in from from the general consumer? Because if we don't, we can never um, we can never reach the the impact we want to have. So I haven't seen too many food companies that really proudly say soil on, on their packaging or start to explain that I've seen, we've seen General Mills doing something in the US, uh, Danone doing something, but it's still very, very nascent. And I think we're going to see interest from the, 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 the super foodies, the ones that are really interested in nutrients. I hope to see some movements there to, to see if we can get consumers to, to buy into this, um, which we sort of do when you buy locally and you buy at your farmer's market, you buy for taste, et cetera. But, in the processed or more processed space, I haven't seen too many companies that are, are really tackling that. So I would be excited to see that. I haven't seen too much. In terms of he's forming a company, so I would say the Bionutrient Meter, like the, then Ben Kittrich is, is on the journey from a foundation to a for-profit. When that happens, I will be very excited about the company. Uh, until now, it's a foundation, so I can, uh, I mean, I'm also excited about that. Um, but that that's, again, comes to the nutrient uh, density measurement part. Teak Origin, definitely on an interesting journey on the measurement of uh, mostly in larger supply chains, uh, the nutrient density. Um, and then, I mean, it's, it's geeky, but I'm very excited about the perennial fund as a, an investment structure. I'm very interested in carbon yield, which is a similar structure uh, there uh, people are experimenting with. I'm quite excited about a number of crowd investing platforms. I still have to interview Go Stewart, um, but there's, there's one in France. I would love to interview like, to give people, normal retail investors like me and you, to invest in uh, a local farm that's in transition. I would love to be able to do that. It's one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast because I can't invest in any of these things. Like where can I put a hundred euros to, to work to actually help this transition? So any crowd investing, democratization of impact investing in this space, uh, I'm, I'm following very focusedly just because I, I would love to see that blossom because I think we need it. Um, not too many interviews I've done yet, yet, but there, there are some on the roll over the next months to, uh, to explore that a bit more. Like, what does this mean for your average um, investor that, that can put a few thousand but cannot put a hundred thousand? Thanks. Um, can you just repeat the name of the Teak Origin you said? Yes, so, Teak Origin. I will put it. It's Teak Origin. 
and it's the interview. Let me find it. It's actually the most listened interview. And we didn't understand why, <laughs> which, because suddenly just before Christmas last year, it went up in, uh, in the, in the streaming data basically. And we were wondering what was happening and it's the interview with Greg Schumacher. I'll put it in the chat. And it turned out that John Kempf, who we interviewed as well of advancing eco agriculture mentioned it in his newsletter as an interview to definitely listen to. But I saw the newsletter like a few months later because I, I was checking it and I suddenly thought, ah, okay, that's why I suddenly it picked up. So it has over, I think we're at 2000 streams or something, which is by far, um, or which is the most listened uh, episode so far. Uh, which shows, I think, the interest for people in nutrient density. It's more than 2,000, actually. And, and they are mostly on the larger supply chain. So they, they work with big supermarkets to measure in their supply. Like if you buy X tons of apples, normally a supermarket doesn't just mentions the sugar level they're looking for, but don't mention anything about nutrients because they don't have the capacity to measure. And they are introducing that capacity to measure when your apples are arriving to actually see how fresh they are, to see what kind of nutrients are still left in. And he made two very interesting, which I keep repeating all the time, like in terms of, we looked at apples and spinach, they mostly looked at, and they mentioned in terms of spinach, like how, how many days does it take for the nutrients to be gone? Basically after you harvest your, your green leaves, mostly spinach, but they, they, this is in general for green leaves. And it takes about seven days, meaning that if you're, green leaves, your spinach is harvested in California if you live in the US and it's shipped to New York, the moment it arrives there, it's pretty much empty, which makes a very interesting case for a regional, local, fresh mostly, like freshness of food, uh, apparently for the nutrient density, for how many nutrients are in it, is, uh, is very, very important. The same with apples. If you eat apples, let's say they're harvested in fall and you eat them now, we're in April now, um, you can pretty, be pretty sure whatever way they stored that it's pretty much water and sugar. And, and Greg made the joke, like, it's better than the Snickers, but it's pretty much water and sugar. It tastes nice. I mean, there's sugar in it. But if you want to eat it for the health reasons and benefits, probably you can eat something else. And, and so I think we're going to, with them, we're going to discover um, a lot of things we probably didn't want to know about the food system. That many cases we buy something and, and it's just mostly water and there's not too much nutrient in it anymore. And, and they are now slowly, they're a small company, but they're slowly start looking into the management side of things as well. So how does the soil management changes the end nutrients in the supermarket? Uh, or how does it, first of all? And then the second question is obviously how. And so that will be very, very interesting, something I'm definitely going to check in with them. They've mostly focused on normal supermarket, organic versus non-organic, but normal, traditional, commercial, large-scale, industrial agriculture, and just showing the differences um, between them. But they are, they are onto something uh, quite interesting. Based in Boston, yeah. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I will definitely check them, check them up. That sounds super interesting. I haven't heard of them yet. Yeah, yeah they're quite in stealth mode, honestly. They're, they haven't been too open. I think they, they launched a database recently, so you can see actually they've been measuring, um, I think, the top 20 fresh produce you could buy in the US in the supermarket, and they've been measuring different supermarkets against each other, like who actually had, over the different weeks, like who had... Uh, which apples in which supermarket had the most nutrients. It's quite, it's quite interesting what they're, what they're up to. Which company is that? Teak, Teak Origin. Okay. So um, it's the one, it's the last interview I put in the chat and it's the name basically. Oh, where did I put it? 
And Teresa is asking, let me see if I didn't miss anything. Oh no, Tomas, sorry. Speaking of investments, I lately recognized a lot of miscommunication and misinterpretation between startups, SMEs and investor when it comes to raising capital. Have you heard uh, yet if you hear about NDVC, I would like to know your thoughts about their alternative investment model. Um, and could it be applied to region ag? Uh, so NDVC is the one I mentioned before that, that works in the software. So they mostly uh, invest in software as a service companies that basically need money to grow, but they are um, generating cash. Like it's not they're looking for a business model. Um, I think the, the short answer is yes, we're going to see a lot more. What, what I think about their structure, I mean, I haven't invested with them and I, they haven't invested in me, but, but I've been following them for a while for the reason that they are innovating on investments. Like they are challenging the normal Silicon Valley um, way of investing. Like we, we invest a lot and we hope for an IPO. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. And they are investing in companies that are actually generating capital, can actually pay back the capital out of free cash flow, out of profit sharing, out of something. Their terms are completely public, so anybody can go to GitHub, can go to their website and actually see how they invest, uh, which I think is very, very interesting. And what I think is very interesting and what we can learn in terms of region ag and food is that they have built an exit in the investment. So from the beginning, the moment we enter into an agreement, the exit is already built into uh, the investment structure. So there's no waiting for a big fund to buy us. There's no waiting for an IPO. We know that if we hit these milestones, we'll pay back that. That goes back to the investor and we up to a maximum um, of a certain return, which is also discussed in advance. So I think those type of discussions to build in the, uh, the exit into, um, into the investment is something that's very, very important and very interesting for the region ag and food space because it sort of solves a lot of the issues of, of traditional equity and traditional debt, which is not flexible, um, and traditional equity, which obviously needs an exit. Um, and I will put another link in the chat, which I just found also because it's similar to the question Connie was asking. Impact terms, which is a project of Tonic actually, where I spent a big chunk of my week. Um, the Impact Terms project or platform, and we have a, quite a big database of alternative exit structures there. So please um, dive into that, have a look, and, and definitely let me know if you have any questions. So, does that answer your question, Thomas? You're nothing. Okay, perfect. Then uh, Teresa was asking a question, which country or region is the most advanced in regenerative agriculture? Ooh, that's a tricky question. I think it seems, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying seems because, for a good reason that obviously Australia and the US is more advanced. My hunch is that because of communication and because of um, most of the books are written in English, most of the um, information comes from there. I don't know if, if you look at the acreage, if they're the most advanced. If we look at, for instance, if we take organic as a, um, as let's say a step in the right direction, absolutely not perfect, then maybe Austria is the most advanced because they have the percentage-wise the, the largest organic acreage or hectares in, in the world compared to how, many land, how much land they have. Um, maybe Sardinia in terms, of, uh, in terms of island because most of it used to be organic. I mean, partly, obviously, that changed. So it, it depends a bit how you define it. I think they did a research that less than 1% of the um, ag agriculture land in the US, you could call sort of regenerative or on the way to regenerative, and which is obviously very, very low. So 
the, the short answer mm-hmm. is none of the regions are super, super, super advanced, maybe some small countries. And a good way or maybe a, a way to look, okay, where are they considering soil more or have considered soil uh, longer is probably to look at um, organic um, sales and, or, and local organic grown. So how many, what's the percentage of land that is organic? Doesn't mean that that's perfect, but at least it provides a platform to go beyond because you have a group of farmers that at least thinks differently in terms of input and output and thinks slightly differently in terms of, uh, in terms of soil management. Um, mm-hmm. maybe Cuba I mean there are some, some countries that were sort of forced to, to not import because the input uh, costs were just simply too high or didn't arrive anymore in the case of Cuba when, when the Soviet Union disappeared they couldn't import many of the inputs anymore and they were forced which wasn't a fun process but were forced to mostly be self-sufficient um, also in terms of, of fertilizer etc so they made a huge shift um, and, and actually are still I think 75% or something uh, is grown on the island itself. So it's an interesting study, an interesting case study. Okay, okay. Um, any other questions? We have a few more minutes. I mean, we have as long as we want, but <laughs> the Zoom line is open. And if not, I... I'm going to thank you. I will definitely follow up, obviously, on uh, on this. I will put all the um, links we shared and the notes um, coming out of the chat, and we'll share those with also the people that couldn't coin, uh, because this is obviously a, a horrible time for for the U.S. and Latin America. Um, but it's uh, it, it works well for us. So I'm planning to do more of these. I don't know when yet, maybe in a month or so. Uh, but definitely we'll let you know. You can find more on the podcast on investing in regenerative agriculture. Uh, you can find more on LinkedIn if you find me as well. And uh, do send me a message with any any questions. I try to get to them. The influx of messages is increasing a lot lately, but it's uh, it's they're all, they're all interesting and good. So I get to them. It might take a few days, um, but that, uh, that should be okay. If they're very, very urgent, put urgent in it, and I, I might look at it a bit before. Thank you so much, if that's it. Wish you a great day, a great evening, depending on where you are. And thank you for, for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's good.